0: So welcome to another episode of the Handicoggy podcast, and today I have uh, Jonathan Peugeot. Uh, he's from Canada. He's a carver, and he has a pretty popular YouTube channel. How big is it now, Jonathan? Because I remember you being quite small, like I don't know, five k. Uh, it's like.
1: about eighty thousand subscribers. Awesome. But it's it. I would say there's about ten thousand people that follow me really attentively. You know, it's mm-hmm. some of the stuff is complicated too. It's not. It's not. Uh, it's not like popular. I, how can I say this? It's not like uh, like all the other YouTube channels because we we don't talk. We we try to address some difficult subjects. So
0: right. Um, and so what his YouTube channel is about is ex- mostly exploring. Uh, religious symbolism, and and he's a Christian, and so he comes from that perspective. And I found it incredibly valuable in order to understand myself better, understand the world better. And I've studied a fair bit of uh, philosophy, psychology, stuff like that. And so I have I've I've seen a lot of thinkers that influenced me. But it's one thing to influence me just intellectually. Uh, but Jonathan is a v- is among a very restricted group that not not only has influenced me intellectually, but also has had a deep impact in, uh, in my life. And I would like to to that impact to, to spread. And that's that's also part of why I'm trying to to share his ideas a bit better. And so, Jonathan, part of what I'm trying to achieve with this conversation is uh, maybe an introduction to the topic of symbolism. And I would like to try to make it friendly to like if Dawkins was watching, you know, someone yeah. that's not only, let's say that they're not 100% hostile to religion because those, those, those are a bit lost cases, but uh, but let's say that they're not interested, you know, the, the typical materialist uh, scientific view. So that's, I think, a lot of what my, uh, my audience is, uh, and sp- especially my audience in, in terms of uh, more immediate social circles. And so that's that's kind of what I'm trying to to break and hopefully... Uh, put something there, so something before we get a bit more deep into into symbolism something that i 'm very interested in is I know almost nothing about your uh, personal life when you were younger and i I know that you mentioned that you live i believe in South Africa for a while, uh, but i would and like it. to know i'd like to know a bit on uh, on two different ends one is on your carving, how do you get started, how do you get into this artistic um and and carving career and also your religious views how did they change over time because i know that you converted to orthodoxy uh but i don't know uh if your symbolic view was there all along if there was a major shift if you were always a christian so if you could maybe give some background that'd
1: be great so i grew up um my parents converted in quebec where i am it was probably one of the most catholic places in the world let's say around world war ii and um and then in the 1960s, there was, just like everywhere else in the world, there was a, a kind of, they call it the Quiet Revolution, where everything started to change, secular ideas started to flood in. And um, one of the things that happened was a mass exodus of, from the, uh, out of the Catholic Church. And some people left the Catholic Church and just became secular whatever. And some people had a more, like my parents, they converted to evangelical Protestantism and for them it was really a a journey towards more experiential christianity where they they um they felt like the catholic church was stifling and was also and the the priests were also ignorant they didn't study very much my dad would chase priests down the street with a bible trying to get answers from them but they didn't have any answers for him and so he felt like the protestants were giving him the answers that he needed and so he my parents both converted to to this kind of evangelical Protestantism and my father became a a Baptist minister. So my father was a pastor when I was younger. Um, And he was a pastor until I was about 13. And then we moved around. I lived in the U S for a while while my dad was studying. And so, you know, I I kind of experienced different things. Um, And then in my twenties, just like many people in their twenties, I started to, to to read and to read more philosophical authors and to ask questions, to read also texts from other traditions and to wonder about, you know, the Protestant faith that I was in. And I, I felt mostly that the churches where I grew up, although the people were great and I didn't have any problem with them, you know, the people were wonderful and really dedicated Christians. I felt like they, like they didn't have enough in terms of their intellectual perspective and that they were just, they just didn't, have answers to the problems that i was seeing in in modern philosophy you know the problem of i didn't feel like the problem of creationism was answering the challenge of science i didn't feel all of these things were not just not jiving with me and so and so then i started to read other traditions started to read other religious texts started to look around to search and that's when i discovered some symbolic thinkers who weren't necessarily Christian at first, so uh, René Guénon, who is a uh, perennialist, and Mercier Iliade, that kind of that kind of writer, uh, Ananda Kumraswamy, who were writing about tradition, uh, you know, in a modern way and trying to help people understand the value of traditional thought, and that really helped me. Like it really broke my modernist mind, you know, and it broke the my modern fetishism, you could call it. And uh, kind of led me down the road. And all this was happening also with my brother, Mathieu, who, who uh, you might know wrote, recently wrote a book on symbolism mm-hmm. called The Language of Creation. And we were kind of going, doing this together. So he started, my brother started reading the same authors I was reading, reading then also um, rabbinical texts. And then I started reading the church fathers more so and discovered St. Gregor of Nyssa, um, St. Maximus the Confessor, all these All these early church fathers that really seem to have a very different perspective on reality and how how the world kind of laid itself out, and that ultimately and at the same time I was studying art in school, and I was going through a crisis in terms of my own spirituality but also a crisis in terms of my art, because contemporary art is a very is a very cynical world it's a very cynical sarcastic, kind of ironic uh world. Very detached, um, and I just couldn't find my place there because I knew I was a Christian, even though I was doubting some things. I knew that I was a Christian, and you know my my teacher, I remember because I was trying to kind of wrestle with these ideas in my art, kind of my Christianity and my place in the world and all of these stuff things. and my one of my main teachers at the end of my degree told me, like, "What are you doing here you, you This is not a place for you. you should go to seminary or something." And so then, all through that, I discovered iconography, which is the the really the traditional language visual language of that Christianity developed in the first you know one thousand twelve hundred years um and I discovered in there a very powerful language, a very powerful visual language of uh of symbolism um and all of that led me to Orthodoxy where most of that language was still alive in terms of the art, in terms of the liturgy, in terms of their attachment to the church fathers. Um, And then, yeah, then finally I ended up converting to Eastern Orthodoxy. So you actually got uh,
0: into symbolic uh, thinking after already pretty entrenched in, in art and craving. Right. And then you just kind of.
1: Well, it was mostly a solution. It was a solution to my problem in terms of art, you know, it, while I was studying art in school, I was working in the contemporary art world, but I was basically trying to find or create a symbolic language. I was attracted to some contemporary artists like Anselm Kiefer, who, who, let's say, are doing that to a certain degree and are kind of using symbolic tropes in their work. Um, but it just wasn't working. Like, <coughs> Sorry. It just wasn't coming together. Uh, but then when I discovered the language of the church, and the traditional language of the of the Christian tradition, I really felt like I'd found a treasure. Um and that it was it was there was so much there. And at first I was disappointed because I felt like this this language kind of went away during the Renaissance and the Baroque and all the modern and the move towards the modern art. But um and so I was kind of sad because I would go to the Bible library and study all these medieval manuscripts and look at ancient images and ancient frescoes and stuff. Um, Until I discovered that in the Orthodox Church, that tradition was still alive. It had suffered, but it was still there and it was still recognized by the church. And so that was also one of the reasons why I ended up converting to Orthodoxy. So symbolism Uh came first, like symbolism came before I ended up converting Uh, I just, it just, just having these insights about reality and having these insights about image making and the place of culture and all of these things is what finally led me to seeing the Orthodox Church as being the, the last place in Western, in the wet, in the West where these, this was still possible.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Also, something that I've noticed is that you're incredibly well read but it's not easy to tell like like you're very philosophically and uh historically literate uh but you don't show it very often it kind of <laughs> goes indirectly like uh like you don't appeal to it very often because you're you're trying to and I think that's very good you're trying to ground it in everyday experience without trying to use too much jargon uh but I've noticed especially when John Verake was involved uh that 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 you can go to a whole other level that at first traumatized me a bit. I was like, "What the hell is he talking about?" Okay, this what is, is, is he talking
1: about? Yeah, yeah, this is
0: not the Jonathan I know. Like, just bring right. me my basic phenomenology, and I don't want. Well,
1: to. Th- th- that's true. You're right in the sense that I really try in my videos to speak at a level that most people can understand, because I want, because I believe that the intuitions that symbolism bring uh, are they are real. Like anybody can have them, you know, the dumbest or the smartest person, everybody can have these intuitions by kind of seeing the connection of things in the world. Um, And I also, like you said, if you read my brother's book, for example, he doesn't quote anybody in the entire book, which really frustrated many people. Like a lot of university students wrote me and said, ah, your brother doesn't quote anybody. I can't use him in my classes because because he doesn't have his sources. But we're also trying to create a different type of we're trying to bring back a a more ancient version of, of, of understanding. I mean, Plato didn't quote people, you know, Aristotle, they didn't quote people and they they didn't quote people just as authorities. They, they quoted people if it was useful to them, but they Mm -hmm. were mostly trying to get to the bottom of reality and how reality works. And reality doesn't work through a series of quotes. It works through within our experience of the world. But like you said, if I need to, then I can also access that, you know, if I'm talking to someone who, who is speaking in that language or using more philosophical terms. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you mentioned already two figures, uh, which I remember them, but
0: my English is not that great, so I can't quote their names. But um, I, I'm wondering if there's uh, figures that really influence besides the two that you mentioned, <coughs> um, but th- that are more uh recent so let's say 18 20th century plus uh, in terms of yeah. philosophy because m- most of the ones that i've seen you mentioned are like early church fathers which which makes sense but i'm wondering if there's uh, some more modern thinkers especially if they're secular uh, that that that's
1: that really influenced your thought that is secular <laughs> that's harder that's a harder one um then, let, then let's just say in general then. I don't want to yeah, make it well, too hard. Yeah, well, in the modern, let's say, I really, like I said, I I mentioned René Guénon, who's a French writer. He was, uh he's early 20th century, but he's an anti, he's an anti-modern. He's a, he's a traditionalist. And so he really tries to help people understand traditional thinking. He has his problems. He has some very serious problems in terms of, let's say some of his tendencies and stuff. Like I I tend to always recommend him with a, with a serious uh, caveat because he's, you know, he has some weirdness to him, but let's say in the 20th century, Heidegger, for sure. I'm influenced by Heidegger and I'm also influenced by postmodern thinkers. I'm influenced by Jacques Derrida and I'm influenced by um, some of the later uh, semioticians, like Roland Barthes has influenced me. And people are surprised when I say that because they, because they're, they're so radical, but, I feel like there's something about in the postmodern thinking, which is actually a return to symbolism, but they're doing it in, in an inverted way. They're doing it in an upside down manner. You see that also in kind of post-crit- post-critical theory, in, um, kind of, even in gender theory and in, and in race, race theory, kind of these, these, new, these new theories. You see that they use a lot of symbolic thinking, but they, they do it upside down. Mm-hmm. And so so you can still get something from what they're saying if you just turn it back right side up. You know, and Jacques Derrida is a, is a a wonderful pl- place to understand how the margin affects the center, how how the indefinite things on the edge, how the supplements, how the the uh the these hybrid figures that exist on the edge of being, how they can actually devour being and they can they can start to destabilize the destabilize the systems that the regular beings let's say inhabit um, and so they can be very helpful to help you understand and even to help you understand how to resist that so so i would say those are some of the thinkers in terms of i would say vladimir losky who is a um orthodox theologian has definitely influenced me quite a bit uh, Leonid Uspensky, who is uh, kind of one of the people who rediscovered iconography in the 20th century. His writings has also influenced me um, quite a bit. Uh, recently, René Girard has been popping up in my... I've noticed that I mentioned him more than, you know, as I see these new religious ap- things appearing in uh, in America and and I see this scapegoating, you know, come come about again. I I tend to uh, reference Rene Girard a little more. So I would say those are the ones that I'm that I'm interested but the th- one of the things that I've run into people are annoyed is that a lot of the a lot of modern semiotics and a lot of much of modern interpretation schemes I find are just bogus. They're just not interesting. And I don't and I I'm actually very much fighting them. Like I'm actually, my manner of dealing with the Bible is against all the modern biblical scholars. I find the modern biblical scholars to be a cancer on religious experience. It, 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 it's quite odd because
0: like, um, they are they take a very hyper-historical, hyper-political view of it. And it's, it's so hard. And I think there's a value on it. And I think maybe you'll disagree a bit with me because I think... When, when narratives pass down through time, uh, it's, I think there's a, there's a risk of them losing their original meaning, and then we have to reconstruct by it. And, and our reconstruction will be incomplete because we don't know exactly what they're thinking. And because they live in a social, historical, political context, that's likely entrenched somewhere in the stories. Now, I think it's incredibly incredibly reductivist to uh, reduce it to that, uh, but it's there. So I think it's, it's it's worth keeping an eye on it. But yeah. but it's it's so bizarre that that's all they see, and,
1: and, and yeah, a lot of them
0: they're Christians. Like I, I yeah, understand no, from an atheist, but not from man, a Christian.
1: They're Christians who don't see how they're destroying their own their own their <laughs> own religion. Um, the thing this is what this is somewhere where postmodernism i think has given me some some fuel you could say which is that you cannot take out of the text the relevance that this text has to us like you cannot take that out and so there's a reason why it has remained in our attention for two, for thousands of years and that it continues to be part of our discourse, and that reason cannot be limited to the historical contingency of this or that narrative, to this king or that king, or whether or not this figure that's mentioned here uh, is, exists or is a, is a, you know, amalgamation of different figures, or blah 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 blah, whether or not this name or this figure comes from Egypt or from Akkadian culture or whatever, like that doesn't account for the reason why we remember these stories and why we, why we care about them. Because there are plenty of texts that existed in that time that people forgot about. Most texts people forgot about. This text we didn't forget about. And so we need to, to account for the reason why we remember them and why we care about them. And to me, not only should we need to account for that, but that is the most important. The reason why you're you have the reason why you telling me that Moses never existed for this or that reason is more important. And the reason why you think that's important and why you're going to make a lot of money by telling me that Moses never existed is more important than you telling me that. And the reason is because that text has primal importance in our culture. That text has the hearts and minds of millions of people and it has been remembered and it has become our story. So that's way more important than what you're telling me, and I mean I'll take what you tell me. That's fine. Like I can take I can take some of it and I can listen to it, knowing that scientific theories will change no matter what. They'll find some other thing in the desert in uh, in ten years, and that'll change the whole thing. You know, I can take what you're saying me, me, but the other aspect is way more important. Right. And 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 like I said, not only is it more important, but it even justifies you telling me this like because you're not writing books bestseller books telling me about some ancient goddess and how they misunderstood this ancient goddess and and you know like we, it's funny you're not writing uh bestseller books about that why why not because no one cares about that mm-hmm. sorry why i always fall in r- random <laughs> no worries but
0: yeah that, that's that, that's a very good point um you mentioned uh plato and and Aristotle, which is funny because that's something I wanted to get into as well because something that I found in trying to people uh, reframe religion is to kind of expose the philosophy in a more explicit manner because then in my experience and I can tell this from, from my own perspective as well that immediately gets some respect from it and it kind of transcends the binary reception that people have to religion, which is like uh, there's X claim and this X claim is either scientifically accurate or inaccurate. And so if if you look through religion to that lens, like you, you just, you're just not going to find very much. But if you force people to think a bit more philosophically, then people start to, they're, they're forced to think about it. They can't just say, oh, that's superstition. Like there's actually serious problems mm. that, you, that, you, that you need to think about. Mm. And uh, I'm curious about how, uh christianity took from the platonic tradition and from aristotle from the potential and the essences and stuff like that Uh, i I can see it very clearly with 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 plato especially but aristotle i'm less familiar except like a pop introduction so if you could
1: elaborate on that i I think that would be helpful well the first thing to mention and the first thing to the first thing that 's important to mention is that Plato and Aristotle do not exist in a vacuum they didn't they didn't just come up with their thing and even in their own texts and even in the texts of the Neoplatonists, especially, they refer that, that that a lot of their wisdom came from other places, came from the East, came from, came from the, the, from India. And so we tend to want to get, we have this weird idea that Plato just came up with this stuff, like out of his own thinking. He was, he was a, he was, you know, even if you read Plato's text, he talks about being initiated. He talks about, you know, you know, he might've been a Pythagorean initiate and around Greece, there were the the Pythagoreans who were in contact with, with, with uh, Vedantic, uh, scholars and with people from the East, and so this this weird idea of that Plato just exists is just not just his idea. Just kind of came out of his thinking is just is baloney. First of all, and that's really important to understand, right? It's important to understand that there are analogies in Platonism with other traditional thought, with thought from Vedanta and in India, with with thought from um, from even what what we find in the Bible right? That there are analogies that are there. And it's not just that one influenced the other. It's that both of them are trying to express some aspects of reality and are doing it in conversation with each other. Um, people are just, it's just weird how people understand how the ancient world existed. You know, the, the letters of the Greek alphabet or Phoenician, they had lost their own writing and they had to borrow Semitic letters in order to re-establish their own writing. And so the idea that there's no relationship between Semitic thought and Platonic thought is so patently absurd. They were in contact contact with with each other. Intellectuals were constantly engaging with each other's thought. Um, Anyways, so that's one thing. Um, And so second of all, you can, like I said, one of the things that, one of the things that let's say Platonic and Aristotelian thought did was give Christianity in Greek le- uh, words that they could use to express these patterns that to talk about reality. And so the Neoplatonists, especially the Neoplatonists, they had found ways also to synthesize some of Plato's and Aristotle's ideas. And they were able to find words, and we use those words in the, in the Christian tradition. When we talk about um for example when we use the word homoousion when we say that that the son is of the same nature as the father let's say we're using words that are from greek philosophy when we say when we talk about logos we using we're using words from greek philosophy um, but the notion of logos is not didn't come from plato that is insane to think that Right. It is insane to think that it there are analogies to notion to the notion of logos in Chinese culture, in Indian culture, in every culture, because it's a representation of how reality manifests itself. Right. And how there's a, there are principles in reality that manifest you can see it's like when you look at something as a human person, you can see the thing, but you can see the pattern in the thing. Right. Why is it that you know that a chair is a chair? And how is it that you know that, those, that all the different chairs participate in the same pattern of chair? We notice that. Why do we think that two chairs are the same thing? They're two objects, but we say both of them, we name them chair. And they're different from each other. They're not the same. One can be blue, one can be bigger, one can be small, one can have, you know, but we all use the same name, chair. And so there's a pattern there there's a pattern which which is we use the word above but it's just an it's an image there's a pattern which is beyond the particular manifestations and that's what plato was noticing he was like he's like there has to be there has to be these essences that are above things because how is it how could i know that these things are things and how could i differentiate things if there weren't patterns that help me to do that and like I said, how can I, you know, how can I say that Athens is something? Like, how can I name that? How can I name a city? It's a million things. It's all its buildings and people and all kinds of stuff and and the constitution and laws and and blah blah blah. And, and but nonetheless, I'm able to pull away from that and to say Athens. I name it one like a mass of millions of details. I'm able to name into one one name one essence. Okay. And so, and so he notices that. And the problem is how to work it out so that we can to help us understand how that works. And so Plato and Aristotle, both trying to propose their solution, you know, Plato said that these uh, there are these essences, these eternal patterns that are above the world, that are, let's say, before the world, and now the world is manifesting those patterns, right? If there weren't patterns, then... We couldn't, we, like I said, if, if there wasn't an aspect of what Plato, what Plato said was true, then how do we even know that, how do we engage with the world? Like, how do we know things exist? Especially things that are more abstract. It's like, how do I recognize virtue? Or how do I recognize pride? So I have all these people, millions of people who have behaviors, and then all of a sudden I can say, oh, that's pride. And I can recognize it across different peoples and across time. And I say that that has a being and then I can name it. It's pride. It's a pattern of being, right? So, so there has to be these, these patterns somehow. Now, the problem is like, what it, what is this? Where are they? So Aristotle, his solution was to say, it's not that these patterns exist independently, like that they exist somewhere, you know, whatever that means, but rather that they exist only in their instantiation. So he tended to focus mostly on the instantiation of the pattern. And so that they exist in their instantiation, but there's a tension there between emphasizing the instantiation, the body, you could say, and then emphasizing the essence, right? And then if you want to know, that's all of philosophy, basically. It's all the whole problem of philosophy, right? And so what Christianity does is that Christianity balances it out in what you could call incarnational thinking, which is that, it's not like Plato, where we think that the essences are outside of the world. And what you need to do is to get out of the world, right? And so that's the allegory of the cave, right? You're sitting, everything you see, everything you experience is an illusion. It's a, it's a pale reflection of actual reality. So you need to escape the world in order to have an experience of the pure patterns, the pure ideas, okay? So that's, that's what Plato was advocating. But the, the, let's say the Christian perception is that those shadows are not shadows. They're the instantiations of that pattern. The things in the world are filled up with logos. Without logos, they don't exist. Without, without essence, things don't exist. They scatter into, into quantum potential. Let's use a modern world. <laughs> They scatter down into potentiality. They don't, they don't cohere. You need, you need these patterns. Um, but then when we, get the sen- when we encounter uh, a being, that's the, that's the instantiation of the pattern. So it's not a negative perception of reality. It's not a negative perception of the world. It's a positive perception of the world. Because the only place where you can encounter the patterns are in their instantiations. And the reason why the patterns exist are to be incarnated right there is there 's no purpose of having an uh, an ideal chair without actual chairs right, right? what 's the point of having a a, a a heavenly pattern of a chair without chairs you can sit on and so that 's the compromise that christianity gives it 's like it 's the incarnational principle you could say and would you
0: say that that synthesis was was present in the very uh, early church based on the narrative? of christ or was that a more modern interpretation after aquinas tried to kind of put aristotle back into theology was that there all along
1: there's there's, Um, no need aquinas for that at all like it's already there in athanasius it's there it's there right at the beginning mm -hmm. if you read saint irenaeus you already have uh you already have that you know if you read the very very early church fathers you already have this this notion um but one of the things that Christianity does as well, and that's something people don't, don't, don't understand, is that because it is incarnational, because what it's proposing is incarnational, the manner in which it proposes it is incarnational as well. So Christianity is not a bunch of theories about reality. Mm-hmm. Christianity is a mode of being. It's a way of living your life. It's a way of existing in the world. It's a connection to, to a story, but a story that you live in. So it's not me sitting in my couch thinking about Christianity and thinking about you know, how this solves Plato's problem of this or that. That's not what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be this is how you live in the world to fully realize what this is about, like what incarnational existence is about. And so the solution that Christians give is love. They say, love, that's how the world exists.
0: Right. That, right.
1: That's actually something that, that took me quite a
0: while to realize and you helped me a lot of, of this um, participatory modes of being that is emphasized in, in Christianity. But, uh, but part of the problem about uh, that way of being is that you can't commit to the way of being if you don't believe in it. And it's hard to believe in it if you don't understand it. Uh, and, and so it helps to kind of deconstructs the value of the story so that people can participate in the story.
1: No, I agree. And that's why I do what I do. Because right. also I think that let's say the type of person that I'm talking to is usually a slightly more intellectual type person, someone who studied in college or whatever, you know? And so for a simple person, let's say for my aunt or my grandmother, or whatever, the, the, they don't need as much you know, they have this experience and they experience, let's say, the story and they kind of, you know, and then it's enough for them. But it's true that for a lot of more intellectual uh, type people, they have a barrier, which is their own understanding. And they think, you know, and also they, my aunt is a barrier to that person because they see my aunt, they see she's stupid and she think, well, I'm not like her and I'm not going to accept the things that stupid people accept. Right. Um, and so that's a barrier. Um, And so that I, that it's true that that's one of the barriers I'm trying to break is to help people see that, you know, just because your aunt doesn't understand the full mystery of Christianity, doesn't mean it's not there. You know, you just have to look at the, to the right people to find the working out of these issues in a more, in a a more profound manner.
0: Right. Uh, Something that I would like you to explore is how this Christianity View other religions because I don't. Because (coughs) when I'm thinking um, about Christianity and trying to embody Christianity, I'm not at the level where I can where I can accept it and act it fully uh, without processing it. And I don't want, and, and it seems to me that there's things that are incredibly valued, but there's, there's things to me that don't make as much sense. And, and I can't truthfully act them out when I don't uh, see that they make sense. And so there's, there's, a, there's a tiny uh, gap in, in the system that I can't um, incorporate. And something that, I've, that has helped me a lot to try to uh, have more trust in things that don't make sense uh is when i notice the same pattern across very different cultures and so that's what a lot of people try to do uh with perennialism for example and and i think that helped that helped me a lot and i think that helps a lot of people but at the same time i don't want to get into the like the huxley mode of just like crunching everything together. They're, they're all a single theology and whatever. And also don't want to have like the modern liberal tendency of just like equalizing everything so that I don't have a hierarchy. But so there's, there's these two tensions and, and I'm trying to balance the two. And I'm curious about how, how Christianity, uh, deals with this. Like, like what is, what is Buddhism to Christianity? Like what is Hinduism and so forth?
1: Yeah. Um, it did, I mean, the thing, it depends. It, Christianity doesn't have one answer to that. It just depends on who you read and, and also what purpose the person writing is writing for, right? Who are they talking to and what are they saying? Um, let's say it this way the, the desire to know what Christians think of other religions, for example, or the desire to be, make that okay because it's a, it's a pressure right now. It's a pressure, a social pressure that you say that every other religion is okay. Um, And it's an intellectual pressure. It's almost like if you don't do that, then you are, you're a pariah, like you're, you're a zealot or whatever. Okay. Um, Now that is, that's something that is, that is an actual social manifestation of something. And, it, and it's a social manifestation of, of a breakdown of, of, of identities and a breakdown of, of particular paths. Because the thing is, is that when you walk on a path, the person who comes to you and asks you if the other paths are, would, would lead to the same place, what is that person doing? What are you doing? I'm walking on a path. And then you come to me and you ask well, what about this other path on the other side of the hill? Don't you think that that path would also reach to the top of the mountain? Why do you feel like you have to walk on this path? Isn't, aren't all paths the same? And it's like, that person is your enemy. Like that person is is not gonna go anywhere, seriously. Because they're not on a path. You need to be on a path and you can't make it up as you go along. And And, and so- there's a danger in asking that question in the sense that there's a day, if that, if the question you ask me is done in a kind of political desire to, to be okay with, with the liberal order, let's say, like to be okay with society. So like, at least I'll be, I'll be accepted by my friends if I at least say that I think that other religions are okay. So I can be a Christian, but not I think all religions are okay. That way I won't run into trouble. Like I'll be okay with my friends. Like that's not, that's not that's not the best way to go like this is the way that I see I see it I believe that everything that exists is in its proper place and in its proper uh, light it is a manifestation of the divine logos and it has to be or else it wouldn't exist there's nothing which exists which is which is evil in itself okay everything that exists has to be a manifestation of the great pattern. There's no way around it. Okay. And so in that light, I think that I can look at other traditions and I can learn some things from them, but I always do it from the inside of where I am. And so I am a Christian and I hear a passage from Rumi and I think, Hey, that's not bad, but I'm the Christian I'm not standing in the nowhere zone of, of like weird uh, universalism. Right. Cause universalism's universalists stand, think they stand above all the paths and they can I look know. at each one and say what they think of each of these paths and they can go, well, I like this about Buddhism and I like this about Christianity and I like this about Hinduism and they make themselves the gods in the world. Um, but in the end, they're not going anywhere. That's something
0: that I've that I've discovered lately. That um, the there's a there's a really good uh, appeal, and it's enticing to kind of pick and choose and to like have a, a very broad overview. And, and and I think there's some true value in that, but but there's also some flaws, some that you pointed out, and also something that uh, that I became more aware as I, as I gained more experience is that. These things are so complicated <laughs> that it's hard to even grasp one to make coherence. So like you, like it, 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 it's a lifetime of, of trying, trying to understand these things in fully. So if you're trying to understand all of them and you're trying to put that into a coherent new path, like you're not even walking anywhere because it's uh, it, not not only because they have to cohere together, but also because your own understanding also comes from the very act of walking. And so if you're
1: too worried about which one to walk, like you're never, you're never progressing. Yeah, and it's, and it's more than that. It's actually more than that because one of the things that happens in Christianity or if you, if you follow, let's say you, do, you engage in Christianity, you take the sacraments, you find a confessor, you, you, do all the, you do all that. Like you're right in there and you're living the life. There are things that are going to be asked of you and things that you're going to encounter that you're not going to like, that you're just not going to like, and you're not going to understand and will actually maybe frustrate you a little bit. But you know what? That's actually pretty good for you because what happens if you, if you stand above all religions and then you create your hodgepodge of, of all the different religions, you end up just taking whatever it is that you like in those religions. And then you actually, then what what happens is that you have no, nothing will make you grow like how can you grow if you you have if there's nothing to challenge you to something that you're not
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know and you see it like you 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 can see it there's a there's a there's a there's a church in uh, California um, where they made there's a universalist church where they put up all these saints uh, painted up in the apps like a uh, frieze of saints kind of dancing together and in that frieze of saints they put everybody it's like there's gandhi and uh and there's like ella fitzgerald and there's you know there's some saints there's like you know augustine is there and origin is there and um but it's funny that and so they're like we're universalists we like everything and everything's good and it's just funny because it's funny that all the people up in your saints freeze are still all the people you agree with Right. That, that's, right. So that, why, why if you're a universalist and you think that everybody's going to be saved, then why is Hitler not up in your freeze? Mm-hmm. Like, why don't you put a little of some people that'll challenge, you, maybe not Hitler, but like put someone you don't like at least like someone you don't like who's not as bad, but you, you need to, you need. So, so that's the problem with like this kind of standing above and, and you can see right. it like new age religion is all that. Like new yeah, age religion is all example. that. It's just like porridge. It's horrible. But it's it's funny
0: because the the example you gave is actually a, a perfect parallel to my uh, philosophy journey because I, I started uh, learning on my own, uh, but then I started to have like an intimation, like okay we're living in the age of internet, you can learn a lot of stuff on your own, etc. But I I just had the intimation that just picking and choosing what I wanted wasn't the best choice, and I decided to go to university and study philosophy more formally exactly because of that. Like I don't want to have my own biased selection of what i like mm. so that, that, that's also it, it's a perfect parallel with, with a more religious element as well because you just you have your own biases like you're just going to have your own little selection of and you just ignore everything you disagree with and that's that's not a good way to to move forward yeah um so i have a lot of stuff that you're not going to have time so i need to kind of <laughs> crunch it a little bit um Okay, so you mentioned love. That's something I'm, I'm kind of trying to make it more clear in my head and I find it's uh, very interesting and useful. And so maybe you could touch a bit on love in a Christian sense and especially on the aspect of uh, both allowing the multiplicity but also having a unified direction and, and the, yeah. the, 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 the struggle between the two that seems paradoxical.
1: Yeah. And that's really, I mean, I take my, my vision of love from St. Max with the confessor, especially, but it's exemplified not only in, it's exemplified ultimately in the doctrine of the Trinity itself, right? In, in the idea of God as being both one and three, The, the notion is that for reality to exist, there needs to be affordance for both unity and multiplicity, right? And so, You need to have, let's say, you need to have a chair, but then that chair, first of all, you need to have leave space for that chair to be made up by different parts that aren't a chair, right? And then you need that chair to also be part of a whole of other things which aren't the chair. But all the the parts of the chair have to commune together and they need to manifest the unity of the chair or else that chair is useless, right? If the parts of the chair don't manifest to you the unity of the chair, then you can't sit on it and it's not doing what it's supposed to do, okay? And so the idea is that that is the, the basic problem of reality but it's also, you can say, the, the opportunity of reality. And that's really where you get the sense of love, which is that love is the capacity we have to be in to be united with others, but also not to dissolve into others, right? Not to completely disappear and to lose our, our individual existence. So love preserves a kind of fractal pattern of reality, which is that you can have multiplicities at different levels and they join together in communion, but then they also participate in other multiplicities and then that joins up so you have a scaling up of reality it's a it's an ontological ladder an ontological scale that happens and then it be, then it reaches all the way and then is exemplified perfectly in the trinity which is which is a it, it which is even represented in a manner which looks like a like a contradiction which is that it's perfectly one perfectly many perfectly three without contradiction you know um and so that so but although it looks like an aporia and a, and a, and a contradiction it's still the pattern of everything like it it's it's objectively the pattern of everything like it's objectively how the world imperfectly then manifests itself to us as this relationship between one and many right so that's what that's what that's what i think love is mm-hmm. is the communion communing with others communing together without Destroying our in our our unique unique existence. And how does
0: love? Because I've had I've had this intimation in in experiences that I've had, but it's it's very hard to articulate. Which is there's a there's like a pattern a a pattern of of all patterns. There's a there seems to be at the core like the a self referential looping thing, which uh, f- from my understanding is kind of like, it's kind of to show how consciousness uh, faces the world and interprets the world. Uh, and, and that's that's how things are created, even though that makes no sense from a modern view. Uh, but uh, I'm curious about if you could explore a bit of that self-reference and that pattern of patterns and how does that connect to love? Because that, that, that seems... I don't know. They, they seem related to me, but I don't quite understand how they're the same thing. Because I can I can think of them differently. One is a more like categorical um, making of reality through uh, categorization and, and how 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 things appear. Uh, and the other one is the 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 joining together. Uh, yeah. And, and, and especially well, especially how it sorry and also especially how it relates to to. Christ as well, because something that I've also struggled with is because we can talk about love in, in this philosophical sense that, that you've mentioned, but, uh, and that has an intimation to the love that we regularly experience with our partners or our family. And, and so that, that makes another dimension that I find it even hard to make everything coherent. I'm not sure if that makes sense. <laughs>
1: I don't know if I'm going to solve the whole problem. Um because this is really difficult stuff, but one of the things that can help you let's say understand is the idea that the the reality resolves itself in a kind of a kind of contradiction which isn't a contradiction or a supreme contradiction i don 't know how else to say it or something which is beyond logic uh logic logic flows out of a, a, uh, a reality which is beyond, beyond logic, okay? And so it, it's expressed in different manners. It can be expressed as divine darkness, for example, you know, and the notion of the idea that divine darkness is, also, is being blinded by light. And so you're blinded by light. So light, instead of making you see things, it actually makes you blind. And that is an image of ultimate reality. So it's something which is kind of beyond light and dark beyond the, beyond the normal oppositions of logic. Um, And you see that all the time in descriptions of, of, of uh, God, you see it all the time. That's why the Trinity is also described in a way, which seems contradictory you. And it's also, it's described very much also in the, in the reality of the incarnation, you know, the reality, the reality of the incarnation is a reality which which transcends logic, but does it in a way that you can intuit. It's not a, it's not stupid. It's not it's not like illogical in the the normal sense. It rather transcends categories of logic by fusing things that are, let's say, opposites in a way that is is difficult even to talk about. Right, and you see that in the sort of the crucifixion explicitly, where. Everything is both glory and death at the same time. Everything is both the highest and the lowest at the same time. And, and that is this kind of weird contradictory thing out of which the world flows, right? Um, you can understand it like, like communion is a good, it's hard to talk about this stuff because you can only talk about it in imagistic form, right? And so let's say we talk about communion, So communion is a lot of things. It's this common meal we take together. It's also a meal which comes from above. So it's kind of like this authority, which is giving us uh, food. And so we participate together uh, in communing together in church, but we also access access that which is above us as, as the authority kind of gives us this food that we, and lifts us up into his, let's say authority. All of that is happening, but, but, Communion is also like the eating of the body and blood of, of a divine man, but it's also not that because it's bread and wine also. And so that's the type of thing where all of a sudden, and, and so you, get, you have something which is the place where we all come together, where we all join together. But there's an aspect of it which is like it's cannibalism. It's an aspect of it which is a self-eating. That's what cannibalism is. It's self-eating that's the that's the impossible uh self-contradictory loop at the beginning of reality that will be a mouthful. i think you'll have enough to think about now (laughs) and 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 i'm I'm especially
0: i'm especially feeling bad for people who aren't even aware of your work at all
1: well maybe yeah so so we'll see how people react to this conversation it'll be interesting and we'll see um
0: so Something that I'm curious, and, and maybe uh, you don't have to go very in-depth into this because you're short on time, but uh, I consider my worldview not 100%, but decently overlapping uh, with John Roveki, for example. And I'm curious about, from your Christian uh, perspective, what is that worldview missing? Because it's not the typical materialist view at all. Like, it recognizes... The, the symbolic structure of reality, uh, uh, the, the importance of, of, of narrative and all those things. But I'm pretty sure that there's still a decently sized gap uh, b- between my worldview and your view. So what do you think I'm missing? What don't I understand?
1: Yeah. No, I think, I mean, I, as you know, I really appreciate John and I love, I, I really appreciate the work he's doing. And the, and I feel like me, much of what he's doing is is very helpful to to it's very helpful to secular people to understand what is this stuff about? Like, what are we talking about? Because religious people sometimes have their internal language and then, and then it's difficult sometimes to pierce it. And so I appreciate that a lot. Um, I mean, I think that John has the same problem as a lot of the modern kind of religious tropes is that he sees the danger of fully committing let's say to a story and, and, and embodying and, and participating in the story. And because of that, he, 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 he doesn't want to do it. And he thinks that it's dangerous to do that. Um, and so he, he has a post narrative spirituality, which doesn't require any type of, let's say commitment or what we would call faith in kind, of, kind of common parlance. Um, but rather is a, is a, is a series of practices, right. Is a, uh, is a, what do you call it? An ecology of practices. And, and the thing is, is that I, I, I think that, I think that it's, it can be helpful. The things that he's, that he's doing can be helpful to, to help people wake up and to help them understand, you know, and to help them improve some aspects of their lives. Um, But in the end, I think that we also need communion and we need, we need to commune together and we need to cohere and that happens in in common, let's say, common story, common creed. All of these things are how we also cohere together. And I think that, and, that's, and ultimately what I also think is that without that, you're just, at some point, you're just going to get eaten by the other fish. Right. Like if you don't have a story and you don't engage in a story, then those mm-hmm. who are will come and, and they'll just take your thing from you.
0: Uh-huh. Something that that helped me commit uh, more uh, was, um, let's call them SME, uh, mystical experiences. And I actually, this is a topic that I wanted to bring up. But then uh, I ended up watching your recent video with a Romanian guy. I can't remember his name. Yeah. Uh, but but you actually spoke of, of mysticism towards the end, or mystical experiences, sorry. And I was actually a bit surprised by your... Um, by your uh, approach to it, or, or rather your view on it, which seems uh, decently pl- posit- positive. And I don't want to fall into the trap of uh, chasing a, myst- a mystical experience and, and people uh, in a variety of traditions have kind of advised against it for because it's, it's it's complicated and it can be disorienting uh, and it can can lead you astray for sure. But it can also be very helpful. And I'm curious if, but but you just for people that that haven't uh, watched the video. So what I gathered is that you thought that uh, a mystical experience can be good in the sense that um, if it doesn't lead you astray and if it helps your life, if it helps your community, if it helps your understanding of the sacred. And so that that's what I what I gathered has uh, your general view. Is that is that correct, or I'm kind of jumping? yeah? Ahead? I would
1: say it can be it can be helpful, but it's really it's you have to not see it as a goal mm-hmm. and not see it as something that has value in itself. And so I think that that's right. usually where people go astray is when they, they, they think that the mystical experience is all, and that they, that's what they're looking for. And that they also attach themselves to those who have mystical experiences as if having a mystical experience is somehow is somehow uh, a sign of virtue, which is it, which it isn't uh, right. necessarily. Um, and so I think that, but, but, you can't deny that mystical experiences are part of the, of the tradition. And And there are plenty of saints that have had mystical experiences and mystical visions and all of that is all, is all part of the tradition. It's just not, you just have to not, not get too attached to them.
0: Uh Uh, And I'm curious, uh, assuming that one has a responsible uh, and, and holistic view of a mystical experience uh, in, in the context of, uh, of an, of the ascent of the mountain within a coherent uh, religious structure. So let's say that we're not uh, like the, the the new age idiot, let's say. So let's take that for granted. So uh, even in that context of, of a mystical experience, would you still uh, view that as a, as a potentially positive role, even if it's uh, aided by psychedelics, which is not the typical experience of Christian mystics uh, throughout the ages?
1: Yeah. I don't know. I don't take psychedelics. And so I, I don't, and I don't see, I don't see it talked about, I don't know if it's somewhere in the church father, someone talks about it. I've never seen it. And so I don't really, I don't really know. One thing for sure is that I feel like psychedelics um, they're, they're like an easy way out or an, or an easy way in, you could say. And so, that's
0: more appropriate.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so, and so I, my understanding is, I mean, my experience of people who have taken a lot of psychedelics is that they, they have prelist, like they have, the, the, they have a kind of spiritual pride, which is they, they think that they have some, some insight because of their experience that other people don't have. Um, and, but it's not always, but I, I have experienced that. I have seen that. Um, but my, my, my experience is that I, I really haven't felt like people who take psychedelics have more insight. I, I don't, I mean, there's some people I met who have taken psychedelics who do have insight. And there are some people who have taken psychedelics who, who obviously don't have insight. And so I don't, and so I, and there's something about it. There's something about talking about an experience you had that is so insanely amazing, but that you can't bring anything back from it. It's like, I don't, mm just, I'm suspicious about all that stuff. So I don't know. I, I'm, I would say that in general, any form of mystical life that you want to lead should be done with a guide, should be done with someone who who can help you, whether it's in the Christian tradition or anywhere else. You know, in the Christian tradition, if you want to take up a kind of mystical path, the 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 literature warns you very explicitly not to do it. Like they say, don't, don't don't do that it's dangerous if you're not if you don't have someone to guide you and so i would say even more so with something like psychedelics because people just take them and then they're like left on their own with their like weird experiences um and it's also because you have to also it's hard not to see the the role that psychedelics have played in the breakdown of the modern world mm-hmm. you can't completely ignore that and i think maybe this is the first time i say this but it's like if you look at the 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 relationship between the psychedelic and the sixties and psychedelics and a, a kind of breakdown of cohesion in, in society, there is definitely a link there. Mm-hmm. I, I think there is. And so there's something about people who take psychedelics a lot, not all, all, but when you listen to like the gurus, like, you know, you know, the ones I'm talking about yeah, the way they talk, they, they really are, have a dangerous they really they really have dissolution on their mind, I think they really have a kind of breakdown on their mind mm-hmm. and uh anyway that's my that's my two cents about that, but you know right like i said i've never I've never tried it, so i don't know
0: uh-huh well I agree with some of you said and then this could go on forever um, I actually didn't want to talk about psychedelics because i've <laughs> I've, I've, <clears throat> I've talked a fair bit on it so on my podcast with, with okay. other hosts uh, but but seeing your um, views on mysticism kind of made me curious and I kind of b- broke my own plan. So I just want to have uh, one last question.
1: And then I'll All right. You Cause I, I do need to go actually. So go, go ahead. Last question. Then uh, Super then quick. Off. So uh,
0: you do a lot of movie interpretations and I think that's really helpful to kind of see the, 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 the patterns and, and that's, it's, it's really hard to understand them without a the concrete example. And so your, your movie interpretations are, are, incredibly helpful and i recommend people to watch them so i would like you to give a recommendation of what you think is the most symbolic movie you can think of and maybe also a novel
1: <laughs> I, I don't I, I really can't answer that question uh, you know uh, i'll, I'll make it easier give give yeah. me <laughs> give me a really good one doesn't have to be the best a good a, a movie that has good symbolism in it um There, there are plenty of movies that have good symbolism in it. I mean, uh, there are plenty of like popular movies. I feel like that a lot of the popular movies have, have good symbolism. You know, the, I don't know which one, like, I feel like Miyazaki's movies are amazing. Those are some of the movies that I enjoy the most in terms of their, their use of symbolism in a positive light, I would say. Um, I did an interpretation of Spirited Away is a movie that I really, really, really liked in terms of sim- symbolism. So maybe that one. Spirited Away is a great movie. Cool. Perfect. Um, do you have a novel on top of your head? A novel? Uh, in terms of symbolism? Yeah. Um, I feel like, no, I always tell people to read to read Dostoevsky. I mean, just because of right now, it seems like a good time to read Dostoevsky just because he, his understanding of the world is is so it's so profound and it's so helpful to seeing what's going on right now. Um, and so I would say that people should read, uh, read the devils right now. <laughs> it's hard right. to read, them, but it's worth
0: it. Dostoevsky is brilliant. I just finished the notes from the ground a few days ago and I'm. Then- still trying trying yeah to that, was, that
1: was hard man it leaves you with a bad taste in your mouth because it's so dark
0: yeah it, it's dark but but it's it's rewarding okay so thank you so much like oh, this, this is super fun um and continue good work like i really appreciate it It has helped me immensely and i know it helps a lot of other people as well
1: all right send me a link of this when you put it up yep i will thank all you right, it's good to talk to Diego. bye-bye